absolutely love that hymn we sang right there, Dan, especially that last section, which is fitting really in introducing our study, you know, the idea that we are calling upon the Lord to come and take us home to be with him, that we might see him face to face and let his grace enfold us completely and comprehensively. This is the delight of the believer. It's what brings us joy. I hope it's what you pray for and what you long for. The Lord himself longed for it when he prayed to his heavenly Father, recorded for us in John 17, when he said to his heavenly Father, Lord, bring them home to me, that they may see my glory. And so it is the the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming will bring it all to pass. And we anticipate that, just like the new believers in Thessalonica who eagerly waited for the Lord's return. As you know, we've been studying the prophecy at the end of the scriptures, the book of Revelation, and so we're in chapter 3 tonight, finishing up this letter to the church at Philadelphia. I love the two positive letters in the list of letters. I love the fact that Smyrna received a commendation, and then Philadelphia receives a commendation, and it warms my heart to know that among the churches where there were warnings and in these strategic places for ministry, there were some faithful ones here and there in some of the less than strong churches and some that were sternly warned, but there were two churches that were faithful, two churches where a condemnation was not necessary nor a call to repent, just really a call to excel still more and stay faithful and hold fast to what they had been doing. I love that. It gives me hope that we, in the midst of a a pragmatic and shallowed up church culture, that we can, by the grace of God, not in and of ourselves, but by His strength, remain faithful and hold fast. When I came out of seminary, I wondered about that. You know, you, you train and you, you have all this wonderful ministry poured into you, and, and you sort of dream about what might happen if you went somewhere and you got with a flock of sheep and you began to, to really work together to serve and build a ministry. And you wonder, am I going to see over the course of the ministry where I have the privilege of serving, am I going to see a, a step down, a dumbing down really of the ministry, or am I going to stay faithful? Even back in ancient Israel, that was always the trend. There was a drift that took place, and you can go back to perhaps even the book of Judges, and you see at the, at the outset, uh, even in the kingships of Israel, uh, a priest like Samuel who wouldn't allow even a moment's sin occur uh, in the camp, all the way then through the history of the judges in Israel who had, to dis, who had to deliver them over and over again out of these exiles because of their sin, and even the, the drift among the judges from the strongest to the worst, you get down to Samson and he is a carnal deliverer, used by God nonetheless, but weak and impotent and full of carnality, selfishness. I had wondered whether the church where I was privileged to serve over the course of the time I was there might drift like that, and so it gives me great encouragement to know that even in such a difficult time, letters went out to churches, and there were two in the list where there were commendations, and they were, they were noted for their holding fast to where they needed to be. And that's what we find here in this church, the church at Philadelphia. And we've looked at it now at the beginning of this 
letter to look at the commendations. And we've noted here that they were told that the lordship of Christ is all that matters in their church. He is the one who is holy and true, the text says, and he is the one who is the genuine Lord, the only Lord and master. He is the one who's the supreme Lord. He has the key of David who opens and no one will shut it, who shuts and no one opens. We saw that weeks ago when we were studying the the opening of this letter. And then in verse 8, there was this promise. The, The set of promises began. Promise of glorification. I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so the promise is the kingdom is yours. The kingdom is yours. It will be, uh, nonetheless, despite that you're small. You might be small and you might have a little power, but your faith will be immovable because you have humbly laid your life before me. You say, will they ever be vindicated? Yeah, verse 9 indicates that there would be a vindication. There was the promise of vindication. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie about it. I will make them <coughs> excuse me, come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So there is this promise of glorification and of vindication that comes to a church, small though it may be, and standing fast in the midst of an horrific situation, there would be this great exaltation by the Lord for his own glory. And then some of the most comforting words of all come to us in verse 10, which we introduced some weeks back and then took a little excursus last time to look at the catching away of the church itself when we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4. But notice the comfort of this promised extraction. You have a very serious tribulation coming a time of testing like no other, and right here in verse 10 is the promise of an extraction from it. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. And then he notes what he's talking about, that very one, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So under the supreme lordship of Christ, he promises glorification and vindication for his own namesake and with respect to tribulation, whether it was imminent to this church and they didn't know it, as we do know now, Christ has not yet come, that last seven-year period of tribulation yet to come, promised in the prophets, spoken of by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, it has yet to come. But either way, the church And all the churches that Philadelphia represents, if the tribulation came, they would be gone. They would be taken out of it, he says here. A promised extraction for their comfort. You see a reference to this idea earlier when Paul writes to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, he says that they are waiting for the Son from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, and then this, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonians, as you know, needed to to learn about the rapture because they were confused about the day of the Lord. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he addresses it again 
and, and addresses the man of sin and some of the events that will surround that great and terrible time as it comes, as it inaugurates and ensues. But here he, he gives the same comfort that he gave to the Thessalonians at that time. You will be rescued from the wrath to come. God's people will be rescued. Here at the church, the letter to the church of Philadelphia, he says essentially the same thing. Because you've persevered, because you've kept my word, because you've stood fast, because you've held faithful. You have glorification, you have vindication, and you have extraction from what is to come, this hour of testing. Now, I mentioned to you weeks ago that this hour of testing here is a very specific hour. First of all, he promises that they're going to be kept from it, and I mentioned to you last time that the compound nature of this phrase here literally could be translated to keep you out of the hour of testing. Now, some who believe we're going to go through the tribulation period, as I mentioned, they argue that the phrase simply means to preserve from within it or to go into the tribulation and be preserved in the midst of it. In other words, the church will be kept from the time of the tribulation by being preserved through it. Now, the history of the meaning of this term, which means out of, quite frequently speaks of a position outside of its object with no concept of being preserved through it from within. You can go all the way back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You have usages like that. Proverbs 21, 23 has that same sense. The one who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps his soul out of trouble, keeps it out of trouble, is never in trouble, stays out of trouble, is kept from going into it. No prior existence of the soul being in the midst of trouble in a verse like that nor is there the idea of being preserved through it. So you can go all the way back to the Old Testament and the Greek translation of it, and the normal concept, or one of the normal concepts of this term, which John uses in his revelation, is the idea not of being preserved in the middle of the tribulation, but being pulled out of it, completely out of it, never entering into it. You have the same usage in passages like Joshua 2, verse 13. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. That is the idea that not you're going to go into death, but you're going to be kept from it. That's what it means to be spared. Another usage, Psalm 56, 13, just to give you a couple of Old Testament references. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. The idea isn't that you would enter into some trouble, but to be delivered completely out of it. You even, according to the Proverbs, in Proverbs 23, 14, deliver your soul or save your soul from Sheol. That is to say, when you discipline a child, you are protecting them from ever entering into apostasy and hard-heartedness. When you come to the New Testament, similar usage with this idea of being kept from, as is promised here to the church at Philadelphia. Acts 15, 29, the Gentiles are told to keep themselves from practices that offend the Jews. He's not saying, hey, you're already doing that and I want you to come out of it. I want to preserve you while you're doing it. No, the idea is to never go into it. They're not already doing those things. They're told never to start doing them. Keep from them. Very common term to keep out of it. John 12, 27, same author as has written the revelation here. Jesus prays, Father, save me from this hour. There's the same terminology. Save me out of it. 
He wasn't saying, uh, save something about me while I go through it. He was requesting, if there's any way to get out of this, Father, keep me from it. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Again, same terminology, very common. And the Apostle John wrote that gospel and that account, and he writes here using the same terminology. So it is likely, more than likely, that this phrase, to be kept or to keep you from the hour of testing, does not mean you're going to go through the tribulation as the church, if it were to begin while we're here, and therefore somehow be preserved while you're in the middle of it. It seems as though this grammatical construction here demands that we understand it to mean we're exempt from it. It could mean the other. I wouldn't want to say it's as definitive as all that, but I would say it seems reasonable that John would use the same construction here. So the promise, I believe, is that they are going to be kept from the hour of testing, out of it. Why? Because they have passed their test. They have kept the word of his perseverance. They haven't defected. They haven't lost their faith. They've not apostatized. They've not denied Christ. They've not had a form of religion but denied its power. They're real Christians living in the midst of persecution and the test that is going to come in the tribulation would face any church like Philadelphia where they are holding fast the word of God's perseverance. If that's the case, that promise is for the church in that time. You will be kept out of it. You say, well, I thought it was kind of a promise just to the church at Philadelphia. Well, you have that similar phrase at the end of the letter in this passage, just like you do in all of them. Verse 13, let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Every message of these churches is for the churches. It's for the local assemblies of God's people. You say, well, why would he indicate this to the church of Philadelphia, this staying out of the hour of testing? Wouldn't those people in the church have thought that it belongs only and exclusively to them as a message? Well, they would have known the last statement. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But more than that, they would have believed, perhaps, that the tribulation could be imminent. Christ's return and the beginning of that judgment period of tribulation could be upon any generation. It was upon any generation imminent. That's how they were to view the coming final judgments. Now, what are they being kept from? Well, notice he says they're kept from the hour of testing. And it's that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. The hour the divinely appointed time, the divinely appointed time for the realization of these end times events or apocalyptic happenings as one commentator put it. So this indicates a well-referenced hour. They knew what hour it was. It had been referenced before. This is the time of Jacob's trouble mentioned by the prophets. It is about to come upon the whole world, a global event. Not a localized time of testing just for this church, but a global event. It comes upon the whole world. And it has a purpose, to test those who dwell upon the earth. To test. What does that mean? It is the word that means to put to the test to see whether there is substance. To see what the substance is. To expose what's really there. To test those who dwell upon the earth. 
And so the idea here is that there is a day of wrath coming, a period of wrath coming, such that the world has never seen, Jesus would say in Matthew 24 and 25. And it is a day of God's wrath, and it is about to come upon those who dwell on the earth, or literally, earth dwellers. By the way, that phrase seven times is used throughout this prophecy, and in all cases, it refers to those whose names are not found in the book of life. So here you have a promise to the church that the church will be kept from the great tribulation period which is gonna come in a global way, the wrath of God against all earth dwellers, that is to say those who don't believe in him, those who deny him. So it seems fairly clear, and this is why our church holds to this position, though we don't hold to it dogmatically, as I mentioned in that opening message some weeks ago, it seems fairly clear that this is a promise to those in the church who have kept God's word and have not denied his name. In this particular time period, before Daniel's last week of seven years, that last week, a seven-year period, that particular time, until that comes, We are in a time where God is pouring out his grace globally upon the Gentiles. The Jews, according to Romans 11, are in a state of hardness partially. The leaders of Israel, the nation as a nation, has hardened against Jesus of Nazareth. They do not believe he's the Messiah. They are completely hardened for a time. And God wanted to harden them out of then which would come this massive gracious work to all the nations, which, by the way, had been promised to Abraham in the eternal covenant. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. The Pharisees, of course, their big problem was they believed that the blessings only came to their ethnicity, to to ethnic Jews, but that was never the case with God. God, out of ethnic Jews and out of Gentile nations, has always had an elect a remnant upon whom he's fixed his heart and he is saving them. He is saving his people. And for a time, Israel, as a nation with its leadership, they would reject the Messiah and then they would be partially hardened and God would then spread his grace of the gospel to Gentile peoples. You say, why didn't he just keep spreading it to to the nation Israel and their leadership? Well, he is still saving Jews, Romans 11 says. He's saving Jews and Gentiles, and they are a part of the people of God, the church. And there is a time, there is to come a time, Romans 11 says, where the Gentile salvations being so numerous, and Israel as a nation being so hardened that God is going to use the salvation of Gentile nations to provoke Israel to jealousy, At which point they then, he will pour out his grace upon them, so says Zechariah 12, and in uh, an attitude of supplication because God has opened their heart, they will weep for him whom they've pierced, they will see that he is their Messiah, and they will believe in him. And having believed in him as a nation with its leaders, then the Gentiles will again see that and another work of grace will explode upon the Gentile peoples. And this is nearing the end. We're in that section before that final seven-year period of tribulation to come as God judges the unbelievers, the earth dwellers, those whose names are not in the book of life, as he judges the earth, that time of testing. We're in the period just before then. 
We're awaiting this rescue if we remain faithful. If we do not deny his name, we will be kept out of this particular hour of testing meant for those who are the wicked on the earth. And just a couple of more things to note. Dr. Matt Waymire has done some extensive work again on some of the reasons why we might hold a pre-tribulational rapture, the idea that we're caught away before the tribulation period begins. And I was helped greatly by a few of his added arguments from this Revelation 3.10 passage. Note that it says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, it seems reasonable to assume that the church would be kept from the time of testing because they had already kept the word through their particular tribulation they were in. So it seems that in the verse, it's basically promising that they're going to be kept from something because they have been faithful in something that had been brought to them, a test that had been brought to them. Those who were satanic coming against them, they had held fast. Moreover, he says, Dr. Weimar does, that Revelation 3.10 specifically promises that the church will be kept out of the time period itself. Note, I will keep you from the hour of testing. In other words, I'm not going to just keep you from the events. I'm going to keep you from the whole period itself. Out of the whole week. Out of the whole seven-year period. Completely. That is the sense of the phrase. Again, it indicates perhaps that the church is taken up before the tribulation period. He also notes that the connection between this phrase, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world in verse 10, and the promise that Jesus is coming quickly in verse 11, Dr. Weimar says that it implies that the period of testing is near because Jesus could come at any moment. So because scripture indicates that the imminent coming of Christ will involve the removal of the church via the rapture, which everyone agrees with, even if they don't agree on the timing, it does imply that the rapture will be the means that God uses to keep the church out of this tribulation period. And so the church is to anticipate that, which is why you have in verse 11, behold, I am, I am coming quickly. You have been faithful. I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing to test those who dwell on the earth. And I am coming quickly. So hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. It just seems like it reads very, very smoothly to indicate that they will leave before this great and terrible tribulation because of their faithfulness and their waiting for the Lord's imminent arrival. So there is a promised extraction. Moreover, when you look at verse 11, there's a promised reunion, a promised reunion. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. What we note here is that they are to be delivered because they have been faithful and it will occur in concert with the second coming of Christ. There is a promised reunion to God's people. Now, when we think about how God motivates his people to faithfulness, this is, of course, precisely why we, we have held to a doctrine of imminence. Regardless of what you might believe about certain passages and what people are told, and, and Peter saying that, that, that he's going to go all the way to his death and be martyred, and then the disciples told they're going to have to take to the gospel the remotest part of the earth. It's true. There, there was a gospel mission that was global. And 
human beings, being who we are and the creatures of habit that we are, had we been told by Jesus on that first day, you're going to take the gospel of the world, we might well have sat on our laurels. We might well have gotten comfortable. Oh, oh this is going to take, we're going to go to the globe, to the remotest part of the earth. This is going to take generations and generations. And the gospel and its, and its urgency may well have been hindered greatly by that. And so the Lord continued to elevate the idea that he would come at a time when no one was aware of it, that he would come at a time which would surprise, that he would come at a time which he says would be imminent at any moment. Jesus himself taught an unexpected return or an an unmapped out return, a return that you were not going to be aware of by events, etc., In Luke chapter 12, 35 to 48, which we haven't gotten to, the master is at the door knocking and the thief is plundering unexpectedly. Two parables in that passage, both parables speak of blessing for those who are prepared and the second parable talks about judgment on the unprepared. Look, you you could have been prepared. You could have been doing the work as though it could be any moment. You could have had an urgency in your heart because it, it is imminent. And there would be judgment if you weren't prepared for it. Jesus specifically says in Matthew 24, 36 to 44, that that day is unexpected. It's unexpected. And he indicates in that preaching session that we are to faithfully serve because it will be soon. How can on the one hand he say we're going to have to take to the gospel the remotest part of the earth, and then on the the other hand say it's going to be soon, you don't know when, you better be prepared, you better be ready. Because he is motivating his people to not sit back and calculate things. To not sit back and say what the mockers say in 2 Peter chapter 3. Oh, where is the promise of his coming? Everything just goes on. It's a routine. And can you imagine if he wanted to have the gospel spread over 10 more thousand years, can you imagine how prone we would be not to pass on an urgency to to our kids and grandkids? If God said, hey, by the way, I'm going to be so gracious that I'm after the cross, it's going to be 10,000 more years of gospel salvation. Would you do much urgently? No, and what comfort would it be to you and I if the text said Jesus could come at any time? That's that's no comfort. He told us he's going to wait 10,000 years of grace. So in the first century, second century, third century, fourth century, he just told them over and over again, it's unexpected, you don't know when, it's imminent, it could be upon you, you prepare, you stay faithful, it will be soon. Matthew 25, 1 to 13, you should be alert, Jesus says, and you should be obedient and responsible. When people come to me and say, oh yeah, but clearly if he said you're going to take the gospel to the remotest part of the earth, I can calculate that in my mind and say it's going to be a long time. Really? Why do you want to calculate? Stop calculating. Could Jesus not have come back before they went to the remotest part of the world? You know what Jesus would have said? I told you to go. Yeah, but you didn't give us any time to go. So? I told you to go. The plan is my plan. I'm sovereign. We somehow have imagined that the doctrine of imminence is not able to coincide with the idea that we're taking the gospel to the world. You know why? Because we love to calculate. Why? Because we're lazy. We don't like urgency. We don't like to be duped. We don't like to believe he might be coming soon and then we go all the way to our 80th year and we die and he didn't come. We don't like that. We'd much rather write books on it. 88 reasons why the Lord's going to come in 1988. That was a book title. It had a revised edition in 1989. 
That is true. 88 reasons why the rapture will occur in 1988. I mean, we love doing this. Jesus does not want us doing this. What he wants is you to be ready and prepared. It is imminent. It is soon. It is unexpected. James chapter 5, 1 to 11, which was written about the 40s, judgment is imminent. Beware, verses 1 to 6. Why, how could that make sense if we were sitting back on our laurels calculating? Christ's coming is imminent, James 5, 7 through 11. He says, be ready. 2 Peter 3, 10, written about the 60s. Christ's arrival is imminent. Mockers should repent. The faithful should persevere. Remember, he says that. If these things are to be destroyed in this way, how then should we conduct ourselves in light of this? Conduct ourselves in fear. Be ready. Persevere. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3, he's going to come like a thief. You don't know when it will come upon you. As I said, it's the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Present tense verb, the wrath to come. It's used in a futuristic tense. It may indicate this is a wrath that is very close and could come at any moment. That's why the Thessalonians were eagerly anticipating the coming of Christ, because he would rescue them from the wrath that was imminent, was upon them. That's how we're to think, beloved. And there's even a past tense verb in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, that is used to speak of it being right on the threshold. Now wrath has come upon them fully. Interesting. It's already come upon. It's already begun. It's being stored up. It is rolling out. The plan has begun. You say, it's been 2,000 years. Stop it. Don't you calculate like that. 1,000 years is a day. This day is a 1,000 years. God does not think about time the way we do. Don't you dare think about it like that. Wrath has come upon them fully. That is to say... He's describing the inaugural sense in which it is being stored up. It is imminent. It is coming upon them. Very close so as to be right on the threshold. That's the idea. That is the idea. So note here, I am coming quickly. There's to be a reunion. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And it is a preparation. You're to be ready. You're to hold fast, to keep holding fast what you have. Take hold of it. Be prepared, beloved. Do not imagine that you can sit back. We do not know. And it could be any moment. That is how we're to live. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It will be unexpected. It will, it will suddenly come upon the earth. So it's imminent. There's a lot more we could say about that, but we, we don't have a lot of time. So let's, let's look at these next phrases. It is a possessive reunion. And this part is absolutely marvelous. So you have the promised extraction. They're going to be kept out of the great and terrible tribulation. But now you have this next set of phrases that tell you that this reunion is a possessive reunion. That is to say, we belong to God. From the time we were saved, we were brought into God's family in, and given the spirit of adoption and the seal of the Holy Spirit. And we now belong to God's family. No longer does he call us merely slaves who never get the information because they're not 
sons and daughters. But now he calls us sons, having purchased us out of the slave market. We're sons and daughters. We belong in the family. We are brought in, adopted in, and possessed by God. And if, he says, you overcome, if you stand firm and hold fast and overcome, he says, I will make the one who overcomes a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Now that is a string of possessive phrases, encouraging concepts, absolutely marvelous. If you hold fast, you will be rescued out of the great and terrible tribulation. And having been taken out of the, the world in the catching away of the church to be with the Lord in the air as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, having been now removed from it so that you're kept from the hour of testing which is going to come upon the whole world and upon the earth dwellers, Christ is imminently coming. You're to hold fast. Let no one take your crown in the holding. And as you overcome, he will make you a pillar in the temple of my God and you'll not go out from it anymore. You say, wow, what does that mean? Well, it's... It is depicting by metaphor this idea that you belong to the, to the community of worshipers of God. There is no longer a locus where we worship. We don't worship in Israel in the practice around the temple. We, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, are the temple, right? Every believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, a dwelling for the Spirit of God. And the corporate people of God are where the Spirit dwells. He lives among his people. God lives in the midst of his people. But what he's saying here is, if you overcome, then metaphorically speaking, there is a sturdy permanence to your belonging in the kingdom the place of worship, the community of worshipers, you have a permanent place of belonging. Now, if you doubt that, look at Revelation 21. Look at Revelation 21. You have a reference here to the temple. After he has spoken about the new Jerusalem, Verse 22 of Revelation 21, I saw no temple in it. That is to say, no localized building as there was in Israel that had its pillars and had its place where they would come to worship. In the new Jerusalem, in the new kingdom, I saw no temple in it, John says, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So we, who are the people of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, are a temple of the Holy Spirit, individually, and corporately, we are the place where God dwells. And in the new kingdom, there will be no building called the temple in it, 
You know that in the millennial kingdom, there, there will be a place and there will be worship and it will be in Jerusalem around the throne and there will even be uh, high worship taking place there, even as Zechariah 14 says, with sacrifices, a marvelously rich picture of, of the, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. All through the kingdom, we will be reminded of it. But here... The scene here is this wonderful time period with God's people when there will be no temple in this wonderful place, the new Jerusalem, the new kingdom, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So now back to Revelation chapter 3, what you have here then is this depiction by metaphor that we are permanent believers in the new kingdom. If you hold fast... You belong, you are possessed by God, and you are steady. You have a sturdy permanence. You, notice, will not go out from it anymore. Oh, I love that. I do not have to hold on to my salvation. I do not have to maintain it throughout eternity. I permanently belong as a pillar, metaphorically speaking, of God's people. There's a sturdy permanence to my being a part of the future kingdom, and I will not go out from it anymore. No one and nothing can remove me from it. That is an overtone, of course, of what you see in the New Testament when Paul in Romans 8 says, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can go to the height of the universe or the depth of it. You can go to the width and breadth of it. You can look at anything that is um, morally significant in this life, death, life, um, uh, past, present, future, history, powers, principalities, angelic beings, top to bottom, side to side, go anywhere. There's nothing that can threaten the Father's hold on us. And that is what is promised again here. This is a possessive reunion where you are fulfilled now. The crown is yours. It's not taken from you. You've held fast and you've overcome so God himself will make you a pillar in the temple of my God and you will not go out from it anymore. This is permanence. You cannot be removed. We belong to him permanently. Secondly, we belong to him personally in this reunion. We belong to him personally. Notice, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God these are references to belonging to God by name. You are personally His. You're marked out. You belong to Him and are marked by Him. The name of my God is written on you by Jesus Christ Himself. The name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, is written on the believer by Christ Himself. And this city, by the way, comes down out of heaven from my God. So it is a personal city given to God's people. It is from heaven, and you are a heaven dweller. You go back to Revelation 21, you see this very scene. It is absolutely marvelous. Notice verse 20, uh, chapter 21. 
Notice verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I love this, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This is his gift. This is the place he went to prepare. This is the, the people of God, the dwelling of the people of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. What is that? It's possession. He lives in our midst. He's our God. We're his people. And we will always be with God. And his presence will be in and through and among us. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. Again, emphatic in the text. In verse 4, we always quote this because we love it. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death and no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. These are the characteristics of the new Jerusalem. So when your name is, when Christ writes the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, this is marking you out as a citizen. This is it. And he says, he who sits on the throne, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. And it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Here's that language again. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Don't you love the specificity here? This is a glimpse at your future home. This is your future real estate. You belong you belong to him personally because he puts his name upon you, the name of my God. And then you are thirdly kingdom citizens officially and eternally because he puts the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. He puts that name on us. So you, are a, you belong to him permanently, personally, and you are officially and eternally a citizen. You wear the name of the holy city and it has the glory of God. And then its dimensions, the great high walls, 12 gates, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west, 12 foundation stones under the wall, 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb written there. And then all of the measurements. And then the materials, the precious stones, the gems. And then there was no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And notice 
The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. All the nations that have been saved, all the nations that are official citizens of this great kingdom who have the name of Jerusalem written on them, the name of the city of my God, it's written on them and they will bring their glory into the city and the honor of the nations and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So it is a promised reunion that is imminent for for calling us to urgency, and it is possessive. If you overcome, here is the promise. You will belong permanently, and you will never again be removed. And you will belong personally. You'll have written upon you the name of God. And you will belong officially and eternally as a citizen is the name of the city of our God, the new Jerusalem, the city of the God of the Son of God himself, Christ, our Savior, the God-man, the second Adam. The city of our great God, the new Jerusalem, will be written upon us, and it comes down out of heaven from my God. That's its origin. That's where we belong. And so we belong to him personally. We belong officially and eternally. We belong permanently. And then he says, we belong redemptively. We belong redemptively. Notice the last name that will be written on believers is the name of Christ in his glorious redemption. We're not told what his new name is, but it must be, if it's new, it has to be new in, that's the term here, kind, of a fresh kind, of a different kind. If you go back to his prayer in John 17, he said that he would glorify God's name in that wonderful, magnificent way that only could come through the cross. Look, he had a glory with which he enjoyed the Father before he came to the earth, and then when he was raised from the dead and exalted back to heaven, there was a new magnification of the glory of God. How so? He was the God-man. He was the Redeemer. And in redemption, there's a new and fresh expression of the character of God and His glory. The perfection of mercy was on display. The perfection of compassion was on display. The perfection of love, divine love that would love sinners was on display. Those perfections that never would have been on display had there been no sin and no Savior and no cross. In all those ways, this was a new and fresh name. This was the name of the Son of God. This is He as Savior. This is He as Redeemer. And it doesn't say that those are the names, but His new name will be written on His people. So He will, he will say to us, you belong redemptively. And I suspect it will be a new glory that we give to Him, a new glory that is, that is splashed out of our lives on His behalf. You can't add to God's glory, but as our beloved Todd Murray often says, get yourself reflected glory from this aspect of our life. Get yourself glory, O oh God. Not that you, we're going to add to it, but magnify it through us. 
And at this particular time, when we are perfected in holiness and the glory of Christ is permeating us and God is filling all in all, there will be this new reflection of redemptive glory and in that there is a name, a fresh name for our Redeemer. And that name, he will write on his people. I'll have that name as well. I will be a pillar in the temple of God And it's metaphorically speaking about a permanent part. I am a part of the worshiping community in the kingdom and a permanent part of it. And I belong to him personally for I will have the name of my God written on me and I will have the name of the city to which I belong and and the citizenship in which I belong. And it will be official and eternal. It will be written on me. And then the Redeemer's new name, fresh name, will be written on me. And I will never again go out of it, and thus I will always be with the Lord, and there will be this great magnification of the glory of Almighty God. Man, if you were a little huddled assembly of believers in Philadelphia, and the Lord Jesus Christ delivered that letter to your church, and your goofy little pastor stood up (laughs) and everybody was so thankful that they had overcome and that they held fast and this messenger came to the church, a spokesperson for the church who had received the letter from John the Apostle because it was a revelation from the Lord himself. And he stood up in that assembly and he said, the one who is holy and the one who is true has the key of David and opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens says this to us. I know your deeds, little church. And I know that you've been tested by satanic influences that come against your little congregation and you don't have much power and you don't have much resource and, and you get shut down and persecuted and slammed against and maybe even some were martyred I know that about you. But behold, because of your deeds, I put before you an open door. You're going to have influence. Even though you're small, you're going to have influence. And I'm going to open doors no one can shut because you have a little power. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. And because of that, those of the synagogue of Satan, they are going to see it. They're going to be humiliated. And ultimately, in the end, they're going to come in their judgment and bow down to you, little church. Because I have loved you, and I want them to know that I've loved you. And because you've kept the word of my perseverance, there is a time of trouble and tribulation which you are aware of that you've been told about, and it's been taught to you, and I know you're nervous about it, and other churches have been confused about it, and even Church of Thessalonica was confused, and I had to write letters to them. But I am telling you, this little congregation No matter how small I have given you an open door and because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I'm going to keep you from that hour just like I will keep every believer from that hour who keeps the word of my perseverance and you are not the earth dweller upon whom this is going to fall. And know this, there's an urgency to it. I am coming quickly, so hold fast what you have so that no one takes your crown and when you overcome, here's what it is going to be. The reunion will be that I possess you and you possess everything I've inherited. And I'm going to write my name on you. And I'm going to write the New Jerusalem name on you, the city of my God. And I'm going to write the fresh name of my redemptive power 
on you. Man, have you heard that? Bring on the persecution and gospel ministry, oh Lord. Because you're coming quickly. And whether or not I don't see the coming of the Lord like many in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 who died without, reveal, without receiving the promises because God was still saving some yet to be born. If that's the case here and everyone in this room goes to their grave having not received yet the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're perfected in holiness and have to await it because God is still saving yet generations to come. Or whether he comes tonight, either way, you can't get any more encouraging than being told if you will stand firm and hold fast the word of the perseverance, regardless of what is going on around us, then no one will steal your crown. No one. And God himself will make us permanent in the worshiping community as the pillars are in the temple. And the Spirit is grounded dwelling within us and we'll never go out from that worshiping community again and we will have his name on us and the city's name on us and Jesus' redemptive name on us. Beloved, we belong to him. And so you, you see the letter close then with a call to faith. He who has an ear. That is to say, an ear that is opened and receptive by faith. He who has an ear willing to believe, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you believe this? Do you believe that you're swept up in this grand plan? Do you believe that there's an urgency and that Christ could come any moment? Or have you been sitting back on your laurels? Have you tried to calculate? Have you imagined in some of your theological discussions that ah, it's way off and I've calculated how long it's going to take to reach the remotest part of the earth? So, so it's not really that urgent. And even though Jesus says the judgment is imminent, ah, that can't be. We're supposed to look for signs. and No. In fact, even when you get to Jesus' Olivet Discourse and he says that those who see the budding of the fig tree will not die until they see the coming of the Lord. All, all that means is that those who see the beginning of the tribulation, it's going to come so fast and so furious. Matter of fact, when you study Revelation 6 through 19, the judgments just come. And that seven-year period goes by like a blur. And it's violent and it's bloody and it's frightening. But it's a blur. And that's all Jesus meant in Matthew 25. Look, when, you, when the people around the earth who see the beginning of these signs begin to happen, it's going to go so fast, it's going to be like they saw the tree begin to bud, the fig tree, and they were alive when it sprouted its figs. It was that fast. The season is short. That's really essentially all Jesus is saying. He's not saying that we ought to sit back because we're going to go through the tribulation period and we're not going to be spared from wrath, and so we have to start calculating signs and times no, judgment is imminent. His coming is imminent. It's quick. What's our response to be? We're to be people of faith. We're to have ears to hear. We're to believe. We're to be urgent. We're to overcome. We're to hold fast the word of his perseverance. We're to preach the word of God. We're to disciple one another. We're to get about the business of a, of a non-tribulation period. Because it isn't the tribulation that's how we do ministry. That's why we do ministry. We're not here to make a nice, neat club and build some nice buildings and 
have some wonderful places for your kids to grow up and people to reinforce some nice things for your kids at VBS and, and just have a nice life and put some photo albums together in a nice church directory and then go to your grave saying, wow, wasn't that a wonderful church? That isn't the point. Why do we assemble? To hold fast the word of his perseverance, regardless of what comes. To bring the truth. To have an open door of opportunity that doesn't get shut. To trust the Lord for that. And to know that when we assemble, it may be our last time before the Lord comes. And if it isn't the last time, we wouldn't know that. We're as urgent as if it is. As if it is. And we look to being possessed by God and to possessing the name of God written upon his people. One final scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. He, he's the first to conquer death, and we will be those that are raised up after him in the likeness of his resurrection. And, and by the way, verse 20, I just love it. Oh, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's good evangelism. I just love that. Well, it's a fact. You know, Christ has been raised from the dead. Oh, you don't believe that? Oh, I'm sorry, you're, you're ignorant. It's, it just happened. It's done. It's a fact. He has been raised from the dead. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also Christ, in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. That is to say, all who've died in Christ who will be called up and meet the Lord in the air first, and those who are transformed in the twinkling of an eye because they're alive when he comes. So Christ the firstfruits, then after that, those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end. When he, that is to say Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power You'll see that when we study the tribulation period itself and then the setting up of the millennial kingdom and then ultimately what happens in Revelation 20 at the end of that. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. He's conquered it, but it will be utterly abolished. You remember Revelation 21, there will be no more death. It'll be utterly abolished. It's not that it's just conquered and that we get raised from the dead but it'll be abolished. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when he says all things are put in subjection, it's clear to us that he's ex he is himself accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Yeah, he doesn't put himself in subjection to it in that same vein. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also then will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Christ takes every one of his redeemed people who belong to him, who have his name, who has the name of the holy city, who has the name of his God and his new fresh redemptive name. He takes all of them and he offers them as a gift back to his heavenly father and so that God fills all in all. 
And so that the statement from him and through him and to him are all things finally reaches its apex, its culmination. So there you have it. There you have the promise. And it came to this sweet little church that never received, uh, never had the need to be kept from the hour of testing by the rapture because the, <clears throat> the church rather <clears throat> went out of existence before the tribulation period. And yet here we are some, some 1,900 to 2,000 years later, the same promise given to every church, every era along the way. And here we are, and it might be that we die before the rapture, before the tribulation period. So there is no yet catching away. And we all go out of existence and into the presence of Christ. And more generations come that God is saving. And they read the same promise for all posterity. And they wait for the imminent coming of Christ. They're urgent. They're ready. They're prepared. But what a sweet promise to this little church that comes down to you and I. You know, we serve in a community that, <clears throat> that has seen in our culture a drift in church life. Maybe if there were some letters written that were contemporary letters, not just the ones we study here, which are for us by the Spirit's inspiration, but contemporary letters, perhaps there would be letters written with calls to repent that would be sent to some churches in our culture who name the name of Christ and call themselves evangelical but have need of repentance. I wouldn't want to get a letter like that. I want to get a letter like this one to the church at Philadelphia. If you overcome, you belong. There will be a reunion. You will faithfully be God's people. You say, well, I thought God has to keep me. Yes, it is true. He does keep you. He preserves you. But the means by which he preserves you is you holding fast, you persevering. That's the means by which he preserves, right? Now to him who is able to keep you, and yet two verses earlier, keep yourselves in the love of God. There it is. You strive keeping yourself in that holding fast position, and it is that means by the Spirit's grace and strength through which God then preserves his people and makes us his possession. So if you have ears of faith, then listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Urgency, imminent return of Christ, he's coming quickly. We must hold fast. We must be like that Philadelphian church. I hope that was encouraging to you. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for the finish of this great letter. Regardless of what we may or may not know definitively about the timing of your catching away, we know it will happen. It seems that it will happen before this time of terrible testing, which is to come upon those who don't believe in you. We accept whatever your plan is and whatever your timing is, but we do want to live in the imminent urgency of it of your coming. We want to be people of faith. So give us your grace. Help us to learn the lessons that are given to these churches as every era of the people of God have learned from them who have had the privilege of studying them. And may we look to what we're told that will be brought to the overcomers, that we will be permanent pillars in the worshiping community of our great God and 
we'll have your name and our cities and citizenship name and the fresh new name of our Redeemer written upon us. Lord, we can hardly contain our joy and we are overwhelmed and humbled by the reality that we are called out by you and saved and we're effectually called and converted and transformed and justified and we will be glorified and we're possessed by you. We're a people of your own possession and we're called to proclaim your excellencies. So help us to do that so that we may not have our crown removed because of apostasy in our midst. Help us to be faithful. May the name Grace Emmanuel, if taught to children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, despite whether it's in existence 100 years from now or not, may they say that we were like the church at Philadelphia. We held fast to the word of your perseverance. We ask for grace to do so in your precious name, our wonderful Redeemer. Amen.